But then it was like when I went to Europe is when I started picking up like, oh, there's some really nice things about Europe, right? So UK right. was like the starting step. But like living in London after like a year, you just feel so like claustrophobic, right? And congested <laughs> and like, so that kind of pushed me out of out of UK and then into Germany. Um, but I mean, yeah, like Germany, I, I enjoyed for sure. Welcome to Al-Hakam Inspire. Today, our guest is Dr. Asif Jamil, who's a researcher in neuropsychiatry. He completed his BSc in neurobiology, MSc in neuroimaging, and has two PhDs, one in systems neuroscience and the second in rehabilitation science. He's also recently completed his postdoctoral training, and his research focuses on development and application of device-based non-invasive neuromodulation to treat human neuropsychiatric disorders. He's recently been appointed in September 2021 as a faculty member of Harvard Medical School, as an instructor in psychiatry and a principal investigator at the Department of Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Asif Jamil, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Jazakallah for having me and uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So Dr. Asif, we're going to talk about brain states, um, what the brain goes through throughout our life. Um, and, you know, we want to ask you loads of questions, especially in terms of um, improving our brain states as well. But just for all of our listeners, what are brain states and um, how are they impacted throughout our life, throughout our uh, day as well? Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, we know like in every moment of our life, um, you know, our brain is always kind of engaged in, in some kind of uh, a mental state. And, um, you know, fundamentally, when we think about it in terms of um, neurobiology, um, we can kind of classify brain states um, kind of in two ways. So one is a conscious state. So in other words, you know, what's, what's our brain doing, um, you know, that we are actually aware of? Um, and these can include things like our emotions, uh, things that we are feeling um, at that moment, you know, whether we are hungry, we are tired, and so on. And these definitely have an effect on our brain state. Then there's, of course, unconscious states in our brain. Um, and these are things that are always in the background, but we're not acutely aware of in the moment. Um, so things like, you know, our general belief system about the world, um, you know, our intentions, our life goals, you know, all of these things are working in the background and they're influencing our brain, um, you know, at any given moment. So when it comes to actually studying the brain, I mean, that's like the psychological, you know, theory of, of brain states, but to study it, you know, it's it's quite difficult with, with the available tools that we have. Um, and kind of what we've relied on so far is this technique in neuroimaging called functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI. And kind of the breakthrough study um, was about 10 years ago here actually in Harvard uh, by Dr. Thomas Yeo and his colleagues. And um, what they found was, you know, they, they took a large sample over a thousand healthy adult subjects and they put them in the scanner and they had them perform all kinds of different tasks, you know, either, you know, doing some kind of um, motor task or visual task, but also during rest. And when they studied the brain activities in these um, young, healthy adults, they found that, by and large, there was a very consistent pattern of, you know, fundamental brain networks that always kind of appeared 
um, something about 17 or so. And these are what we call now like functional brain networks. Um, so they're just patterns of brain activity that kind of um, show up, you know, whether we're, you know, daydreaming or whether we're engaged in a task. And they kind of span different key hubs of the brain. So 17 of them. So that's kind of the, the number that they've, mm. you know, were able to cluster down and they were able yeah. to kind of identify with, you know, with more or less high, high similarity between, between adults. Yeah. So how, just want to kind of get into that a little bit more. So how would, can you expand on that and tell us a bit more about that? Cause is that, are these patterns seen with, um, do they vary with different kind of states of the brain? Do they vary with our mood, our emotions? Um, do they vary with sleep as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Um, so, you know, these brain networks, you can kind of think of as kind of like the main, you know, ingredient, you know, if you're, if you think of like a food recipe, right, you have like main ingredients that make up of a dish, but of course, there's other things that you add in, you, know, you add spices, you depending on how the way you cook, you end up with the final product. So the, the these brain networks are kind of the fundamental constructed architecture of our brain. Um, but then there's other things that influence those brain networks. And, you know, like you mentioned, our mood, our emotion, um, our prior history in life. Um, but also, you know, there's things like, you know, chemicals like neuromodulators, which play a huge role. And then, of course, there's like the daily, um, the daily changes in our in our brain state uh, that are driven by like our circadian rhythm, um, that are driven by our hormonal cycles, um, and these definitely all are external factors which all influence our brain, and fundamentally they kind of influence our conscious state. Right, like these are ways that we can actually think about consciousness as well like how is our awareness or how is our experience of of life as a whole um, i think one question would be we have all these different brain states you you know you're talking about all these effects as well that affect the brain. how um important would you say these different brain states are for us throughout our life yeah so the thing about brain states in in general is that you know, it's it's always good to think about it in terms of you know what's what's actually normal, right, and what's not normal. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in a normal healthy adult, you know, we have we experience a different range of emotions. You know, throughout our day, we we might be happy, we might be stressed, we might be tired, um, and then of course, there's also life that's happening in front of us, right? Like we have our challenges in life. You know, we have work, we have. Um, to take care of our kids and so on. Yeah. Um, so the the thing about being able to control our brain state is actually very important because you know it's it's kind of um, what we call in, in neuroscience uh, cognitive control, right? our ability to dynamically and flexibly change our brain state in order to do different tasks at once. But also from an emotional control point of view, you know, not not to just always be locked into a certain emotion. Um, but to so actually is that, be able to modulate that. Sure. Is that neuroplasticity or is that completely different? Yeah, no. So it, it connects with neuroplasticity in a way that if we are, you know, if we're actively engaged in a certain task, um, you know, if we're always, for example, if we're trying to learn, um, you know, there will be activity in the brain, which will be, you know, driving 
that learning process, which which is what we call neuroplasticity. Sure. Um, but neuroplasticity is, uh, you know, it's kind of a principle which governs learning and formation of memories in the brain. And this occurs, of course, during the day, but it's actually more during the night, like when we sleep. Um, when neuroplasticity is actually kind of uh, what we call consolidation, um, which happens during during sleep, actually. Let's talk about that. So you, you we're talking about sleep. Let's go kind of in a typical day. Um, you have you wake up in the morning, go about your day, and then at night as well. So how would brain states change throughout the day, and what what implications would that have? Yeah. Um, so in terms of thinking about our day to day, you know, or moment to moment um, fluctuation. So um, the important thing to know is that, you know, the the body as a whole is governed by cycles. Right? So we have, of course, we have the cycles that are in the universe. We have the rotation of the um, of the sun and we have the rotation of or the spinning of the earth. Um, but also we have these cycles in our body. And um, these are what we call circadian rhythms, right? Um, you know, these cycles which um, change our level of alertness, change our level of arousal. And in fact, it's um, even mentioned in the Quran um, that it's actually a sign of Allah that, you know, he says, um, surely, you know, I've given you night and day as a sign um, and sleep uh, and specifically as a sign. So, in other words, this this all kind of aligns together. The way that we sleep at night is kind of correlated, you know, with the rotation of the Earth. And then when you look at it biologically, um, there is these, you know, uh, specific chemicals which are driving our circadian rhythm. Um, these include things like adenosine, um, melatonin, um, but also internal changes in our uh, in our body, like our body temperature. Um, which, you know, this fluctuation of our body temperature, which promotes our ability to sleep at night. Um, and so all of these external factors are kind of what drives this, you know, rhythmic oscillatory, you know, mechanism of sleep and awake. So if we kind of apply that to a practical sense, you know, particular individuals suffering with insomnia or even healthy individuals who do shift work, um, they may work nights and you know, the, as a doctor as well, you know, you're changing pattern of shifts and things. So um, how what's happening to the neurochemistry there and how disruptive is that going to be to your brain states? Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, so, you know, this is a kind of a common thing, you know, where a lot of people, they say, like, you know, I work better during the nighttime. So, you know, they tend to stay up all night. Some people say, no, I work better in the mornings, you know, like very early hours, like 4 a.m., 5 a.m. So fundamentally what happens is that, um, you know, there's this thing called chronotype, um, which is kind of embedded uh, in our genetics. Um, and this can also be adaptable as we as we uh, change our body, um, our routine and so on. And right. these chronotypes are kind of what govern uh, our body's biological clock. So, you know, sometimes if you have a, you know, people can be classified as, um, as, you know, early birds. Some people are kind of classified as like late owls. And these are fundamentally driven by how our body's um, genetics um, and, you know, specifically our chronotype determines our activity level. So now uh, you mentioned people who are awake at night. 
uh, performing shift work. So, of course, you know, you would expect that after you perform such, you know, late night activities, you would go home and you would go to sleep in order to kind of recycle and kind of rejuvenate your, your body's biological clock. But what actually happens is that that nighttime um, is kind of a little bit detrimental. So one thing we know from now uh, neuroscience and biology is that exposure to sunlight um, and exposure to like, doesn't even have to be sunlight. Now we've seen also artificial lighting, which can even have the same effect. Um, it's actually influencing also our body's ex- uh, um, exposure, our, our body's um, uh, receptors of melatonin. And melatonin is a very key chemical, which, um, which is kind of involved in our sleep process as well, our ability to fall into sleep. Um, so it's, it's quite hard. I mean, you could, people try now to, you know, kind of compensate for that by taking melatonin as a supplement. Um, mm. A lot of controversy around if that really actually works or not. But in general, you know, like there is, there is definitely a reason why like humans kind of evolved to, you know, sleeping during the night and then doing activities during, during their wakefulness state. Yeah. So generally as well, just from a day-to-day perspective, it's wise not to turn on the lights so much at night. Phone use, you know, everyone uses phones exactly. um, at night on television. So yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's quite hard in modern day society to, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think now there's this research coming out that shows, you know, even I think Apple like designed um, specific filters for tablets and iPhones, which start to emit less and less like this blue light, you know, which yeah, yeah. which is what they think is like the frequency, which is really affecting sleep. Um, and no, it's absolutely right. You know, like um, it's, it's definitely wise to start shutting down uh, your electrical devices, you know, as we approach as we approach our, our, our sleep time, um, because these definitely have a detrimental effect uh, on our sleep quality. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's incredibly interesting. Just uh, in one of our episodes, we had Dr. Asan Khan, who's an ophthalmologist, talking about blue light and um, kind of in, in agree, agreeing with what you're saying there, that, you know, it, towards the kind of nighttime, it does kind of um, stimulate certain receptors in the eyes and, the, and therefore the brain. Um, and even Huberman's, uh, uh, you know, Andrew Huberman on his podcast, he's mentioned quite a bit about the importance of, of sunlight in the morning and how that kind of stimulates um, brain states. Um, I just want to get into sleep a little bit more. Um, what, uh, essentially, in the context of modern science, how well understood is sleep? And are there any particular ways or ways in the future that we can kind of better map sleep um, to understand it a bit better i know you talked about sort of functional mri in the beginning but are there kind of efficient methods to get a deeper look at what's happening inside the brain when we all go to sleep yeah yeah great question um so sleep is something i i was you know it's one of those early topics that really kind of even drew me into the field of neuroscience because it's such a wonder right it's such a phenomenal Mm. process like you know all of a sudden we're awake and then we're conscious and then we just go into this stage of just being completely unconscious, being unaware of what's going on around us. And then we wake up and we feel kind of completely normal. Um, So this is a very uh, puzzling, still a very puzzling um, question in the field of neuroscience, you know, like what's actually happening. So there are some things that we know now about sleep. Um, You know, the first thing is that sleep 
by itself is kind of considered a very restorative process of our body. Um, so it's a way for our body to, you know, um, rest, but also for our, our brain uh, to think about, you know, like everything that happened during that day, what information, you know, does the brain need to actually hold on to and what information should it try to forget? So all of that is actually happening during sleep. And um, a lot of these studies, you know, like in order to understand what's happening in the brain, um, we've had to rely on animal studies mostly to understand that because for for human studies, it's very difficult to really get into the brain, uh, especially in awake or in this case, a sleeping brain and try to understand the physiology. So animal studies is where we got most of the information. Um, you know, what are the neurotransmitters that are released in, during during sleep? Um, and how are these like chemicals in our brain um, changing and kind of helping the brain with its restorative process? So the main thing is that, you know, we have these different stages of sleep. Um, so we when we normally enter sleep, we enter what we call light sleep, which is considered like stage one. Um, and this kind of early light sleep is what, you know, it kind of gives rise to, you know, our first stages of um, feeling, um, our, in some cases, we start to feel uh, or experience a little bit of dreaming as well. Um, but during the later and later stages of sleep um, is when most of the restorative processes start to happen. So a stage two uh, sleep is when we start to have these things called sleep spindles, um, which are these like very uh, fine electrical signatures in our brain's um, electric activity. And uh, these sleep spindles are what we think is happening when our brain is trying to kind of reconsolidate its motor memory. Um, and then more deeper into sleep is when we have what we call stage three or stage four. And um, this is kind of characterized by what we call slow wave sleep and in slow wave sleep we have like you know it's even very clear to see in humans um we have these like things called very slow brain oscillations and what what i mean by that is when we record electric activity from the brain we see you know very smooth um up and down cycles of brain activity and what we think is happening in this very deep sleep is actually it's also correlated um, in some ways with states of unconsciousness and patience is this concept of bi-stability in the brain. So the brain is kind of alternating between you know, periods of on and off, on and off, on and off. And in this very deep sleep state is when, you know, we also have um, consolidation of, of our memories. Um, and then from that stage, you know, very deep sleep stage, we progress into what we call um, rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep. And REM sleep is kind of, you know, a lot of people already know is when you have these rapid left and right eye movements. Yeah. Um, and that's when we think we're getting most of our dreaming. Um, we're experiencing a lot of visual hallucinations, um, very, you know, rich sensory information. Um, and, and REM sleep is also a kind of a state of the brain where a lot of memory and learning is forming but it's also a way for the brain to kind of um go under you know what we might consider therapy right um you're you're experiencing all of these intense emotional stimuli um at the same time our body is kind of paralyzed um 
you know, our, our entire muscle system gets kind of shut off at the brainstem. Um, so our, our mind is experiencing everything. Um, at the same time, the levels of, you know, epinephrine are, are also getting decreased so that we're not actually feeling emotion. Um, you know, we're not experiencing that emotional effect. We're just kind of seeing it. Um, and it's, it's, for, it's a way for our brain, our, our, our mind to kind of um, reconcile like those emotions and those, um, those events into our, into our long-term uh, storage. I think the natural question then would be how much sleep do people actually need? And this is a huge question, which, you know, everyone's asking. And is it, there's always this um, element of duration and quality. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, So what we've started to understand now is that it's not always the length of sleep that's important. Um, So, you know, having, um, having six hours of sleep versus having eight hours versus having 10 hours, that's not going to be a big difference. Um, of course, I wouldn't recommend somebody to sleep all day. Um, that's definitely not going to be helpful. But um, what we do know is that it's actually the quality of sleep, which is important. And not only the quality, but when we think about the timing, um, it's also consistency, which is very important. So there has been um, a lot of studies done now showing that, you know, um, there was a study even here at Harvard um, where they took a bunch of students and they, you know, right before they were about to take an exam, they tried to ask them, you know, like, how is your sleep quality? How's your sleep duration? And what they found was that the best predictor of performance on the exam um, was not the duration, but it was actually um, consistency in the sleep quality. Um, so sleep quality, what I mean by that is, um, you know, when we, when we talk about our different sleep stages, um, we, we, the important thing is to make sure we're getting enough of the deep sleep. Um, so the stage three sleep or stage four sleep that I mentioned, um, because that is what is really going to, you know, consolidate our memories and so on. Um, but another thing is the, you know, and we see this now in a lot of, um, psychiatric patients is, um, um kind of reducing the amount of times we are waking up in the middle of the night or or what we call arousals, um, which can actually end up fragmenting our sleep and then causing a lot of problems the next day. Um, And so, you know, both of these things are important, um, consistency and sleep quality. Um, So I would definitely recommend, you know, for for those students out there, um, make sure you're, you know, you're being consistent. And one more thing I would say with, with respect to the time is that we have now some research showing that there seems to be an optimal time duration. Um, so we think now that like an interval of around 90 minutes seems to be a very um, key or very important uh, time interval. So 90 minutes is about the time when we complete one complete sleep stage cycle. So stage one, two, three, and then REM. Um, and normally now I think even some uh, smartphone applications are starting to build this in. Um, they try to wake you up, you know, as an interval of ninety yeah. minutes. I've so got one on my be... phone. I've got one on my phone as well, and great, it actually works really well. So you can actually, oh really, oh yeah, wow. you, you can actually. Uh, well, for my experience and a couple of friends who have used that, you can actually. Um, so you just time it, you know, in ninety minutes, and then you do um, rough. It tells you the kind of target time that you should be going for. Uh, it'll round it up or down fifteen minutes. Um, or half an hour and yet for me it's worked um, amazingly you you just wake up fresher that's that's what how I feel and 
Um, you don't have that grogginess about, um, you know, when you wake up sometimes in the middle of your sleep and you don't feel good. So yeah, I, I've used one of those apps and definitely, um, it definitely works for me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, it, it just goes to this principle of, you know, rhythm, rhythms, right? And like our, our biology is really kind of governed by this like rhythmicity, you know, and, and this rhythmicity just doesn't even happen over a la- large scale, but it happens even in very, very time, smaller time scales, right? Our, the way our brain is working, it's, it's kind of very fascinating. Like the rhythmicity of our brain is actually what's causing communication between different parts of the brain. Um, the way that the neural activity fires, you know, whether it's low frequency or high frequency, um, you know, these all kind of govern the electric principles of, of our brain's communication. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, it's very important to think about rhythms, you know, when we think about our, our neurobiology. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, I think that is interesting. I mean, Fatah's mentioned the app, uh, I've recently seen my fitness band, uh, started tracking my sleep there, but, um, I, I don't know how accurate these things are at the moment, but they do, do tend to kind of give you an idea of, you know, I, I how how many breaks in your sleep and what time you've woken up and things um i think having a a chat with you has definitely shown us the importance of sleep and getting good quality sleep as well um just want to focus on kind of brain states in the day quite often um we've seen that kind of sleep has an impact on your productivity and your ability to focus in the day but how can we better optimize our daily routines to ensure that we do achieve kind of the tasks that we set out to do and we're not kind of um, wasting our day and also keeping our our mental state healthy yeah yeah great question um so this is kind of a question that's really been you know getting explored more and more recently this whole concept of like you know neurohacking like you know how can we kind of hack our biological clock um so we've already seen you know there are some cultures in the world like which um try in some ways even you know naturally to kind of take advantage of our biological clock and kind of synchronize their day-to-day activity around that clock um you know for example i know in japan um there's kind of a tradition where you know after lunchtime um you know the japanese workers will take a 20-minute nap um and then come right back to work i mean japan is a very kind of an outlier when it comes to productivity you know the (laughs) the amount of work that they're doing there it's, it's just unbelievable um, and then of course, you know, there's like these tropical countries like Spain where, you know, they've yeah. also kind of built this culture of, you know, taking, um, a very long siesta. I think that's what they call it, um, around lunchtime. Um, yeah. so, so I think the, the thing that we, we, we've kind of started to understand is that this biological clock, um, uh, our circadian rhythm and this, like specifically this 90 minute, what we call altradian rhythm, um, seems to kind of be also involved during the day-to-day life, um, during the day or during our wakefulness state. Um, and so there is some research now showing that if you kind of time your activity um, in 90-minute intervals, um, that might actually, you know, be beneficial. Like there will be this period of high productivity, you know, at the end of 90 minutes that will kind of taper down. Um, and so it's kind of recommended to, you know, not do like, a burst of activity at once, but, you know, take these kind of short pauses. Um, and then there, another fascinating um, area of research now is like in this area of taking power naps. Um, so, I mean, this is also kind of very inter-individual. Like I've, 
I know like my my older brother, he's you know he'll just take a nap, you know, um whenever you you know, you can even ask him if he'll just take a nap. For me it's very difficult to, to sleep during the day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's very heterogeneous, but in general what we've seen is that in in especially in some of the research in my previous lab, um, that if you take around a twenty to forty minute nap, um, that can have a very you know, um, very enriched and very restorative effect on your day. And even in some ways, it can be kind of similar to waking up in the morning where you feel completely alert and um, and active. Um, so, you know, think about these things, like, you know, timing your work, um, not doing everything at once, but also taking advantage of the clock. And then, of course, also, we should think about the time of the day, right? Um, so where our body is kind of, in general, more alert, right? after we wake up in the morning. Um, that's when our level of adenosine, which is this receptor, which kind of builds up during the day, is at its lowest. Um, so in the same way, we have less sleep inertia and therefore we feel more, um, we feel more energetic. So, uh, you know, doing, doing our important tasks earlier in the day for sure is going to help. Studying, especially earlier in the day, um, it's definitely recommended. Um, so, you know, these are just very general core things that we can kind of, uh, work on. I think, um, it was interesting. You mentioned that a lot of, um, cultures and, um, religions of course have taken this on and actually napping was also a practice of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, um, peace and blessings peace of God be upon him as well. He used to take midnight, uh, midday rather, um, naps as well. And of course, you know, it, it's also, I think going forward, when science advances and especially for muslim researchers there is an element within islam of actually waking up in the middle of the night and doing the hajjud as well so that it would be interesting you know it sounds counterintuitive to your sleep but of course you know we believe as muslims that allah is of course the creator of the human mind as well so it's not going to be something which is in the long run um bad for your health um so it it would be interesting to explore that route as well in the future of course and this is something you know a call to muslim researchers of course to kind of see the different um elements within the islamic way of living as well absolutely i mean you know when we think about uh, our five daily prayers um yeah and especially like you mentioned or the hajjah prayer so you know, like I mentioned, this concept of rhythms, right? Altradian rhythms and, you know, doing things in interval. Um, so it's very interesting the way, you know, our Islamic um, day-to-day principles and lifestyles kind of also trace back to the way our brains work, right? So I mentioned already, you know, working in cycles, but also the way our memory works as well. It's not, it's already been shown that you know, in order to develop plasticity or in order to develop memories, um, simply just stimulating neurons, you know, for a long period of time, it's not going yeah. to really establish that connection. It's just a rhythmicity, you know, like, you, you, you know, we know already even at the level of cells that, you know, the neurons have this refractory period where it takes time for the neurons to come back um, close to sodium channels before it fires again. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's one of the things in, in neuroscience as well that we know and, you know, doing, doing prayer, doing Salat, um, I think besides the spiritual benefits, there's a lot of 
biological or neurobiological um, psychiatric benefits as well, which I would be happy to go into. Um, but I mean, that's all kind of more related to our emotions, um, our, our level of um, satisfaction in life. Um, mm. and, and yeah. Yeah, let's let's bring in kind of this element of mood and emotions. I think that's a huge part of our day-to-day routine, you know, happiness, sadness, <clears throat> um, anger, depression, anxiety, all these things, they kind of tie in. Um, tell us about the neurobiology of, of emotions, what's happening in our brain, the kind of chemistry side of things, and perhaps if kind of techniques on how we can better control these emotions to prevent um either prevent psychiatric disorders like depression or anxiety or um, prevent ourselves getting into those kind of states? Yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's an important topic for sure. Um, so we know that, you know, when it comes to emotions, um, our, the way our brain kind of is handling or you know, processing emotions is kind of a cascade of neural processes, right? So, you know, at the first level, we have the, what we think uh, or we call sensation. So the information that we're getting from our environment around us, you know, what we are seeing, what we are feeling, what we are hearing. Um, And as that information enters our brain, then we have this process of perception, you know, so how do we actually make sense of that sensory information? Once we perceive that information, that then goes into our uh, thoughts, right? So how are we thinking about what we are feeling? And then ultimately, those thoughts are you know, what drive our behaviors. So when it comes to happiness, sadness, anger, um, all of these things are you know kind of modulated at each of these different steps. Um, so you know you mentioned um, you know how can we think of you know regulating our emotions and then you know how that might apply to some of these uh, pathological states. So you know our understanding of um, of the neurobiology of emotion is still very, you know, it's still very at its elementary level. Um, it's kind of very complex in terms of when you think about psychiatry. Um, there are some, you know, uh, some developments which, um, which I've been working on in, in my lab here, um, which focuses on certain brain circuits, which are what we think might be driving certain characteristics of depression. Um, so what we're doing is we're looking into the concept of um, of emotional states, so positive emotional states and negative emotional states, and how we can you know identify the biological circuits. And some of the research we found is that there are you know going back to the concept of brain networks, um, there is like a brain network which we think is kind of somehow involved. There's a region in the brain. Uh, in our in the kind of front of our brain called the prefrontal cortex, um, which is connected to a region kind of more in the midline and then deeper, um, which we call the anterior cingulate. Um, and we think that the connection between the prefrontal and the and the anterior cingulate uh, might be a very important connection that might be um, overactive in patients with depression. Um, and these two brain areas are, you know, they seem to be responsible for um, on the one hand, processing emotion, and then on the other hand, um, being able to modulate or change the brain state. Um, and so the research that we've been trying to kind of do is try to disturb that, what we think is, is hyperconnectivity uh, through external stimulation and, and, and hopefully try to see if patients are, are going to uh, 
rehabilitate from that. Um, we we do see some uh, very beneficial effects, but the problem is that even with pharmacology, uh, yeah. psychotherapy, and even the stuff that we're doing, which is neuromodulation, um, these effects are very short-lasting. Um, and so, you know, six months later, eight months later, patients tend to relapse, and then they come back. Um, and then, you know, we, we are still back to stage one. So so, so on, on that, sorry, it, you're saying, you know, through pharmacology as well and these different techniques, there is the relapse. But if we backtrack and also um, after the treatment, what effect is modern life having on um, depression, anxiety, on these moods? How could someone prevent themselves going into those states for a long term? Of course, we all experience, you know, sadness, depression, anxiety, um, but, you know, they shouldn't be overtaking our life. How so? What kind of um, you know tips would you give for people to regulate their uh, moods, and also if they've gone through treatment, stay out of falling back into that depression? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so one thing that we know is already there is like a when it comes to individuals, you know, of course, prior history is an important factor. You know, like you know what kind of led you to that moment, your childhood, or events that led you to having, you know, very deep levels of depression or anxiety. Um, so, you know, our childhood, our environment plays a big role, um, especially now we've seen that there is like this been huge spike um, ever since COVID um, with depression and anxiety, um, which seems to be kind of related to our change in, 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 our, in our environment, right? Like we're not able to socialize as much with exactly. others. Um and, in, and instead of socializing or going outwards, we're kind of going more inwards, right? We're, we're kind of develop, developing these addictions, whether they're to substances or to products like technology, cell phones. Um, and this is kind of at the biological level affecting uh, our reward circuit, right? Like our dopamine um, reward circuit. And as soon as this cyclical process just starts getting more and more... Um, pronounced and more and more um, aggravated, we start to kind of lose our contentment in life then. We start to lose our feeling of happiness, our feeling of joy, um, because we're we're just locked into this very singular uh, reward pattern. Um, So I would say to reestablish that healthier mood, um, the first step would be to kind of um, think about how we can rewire how our brain thinks about reward. Um, so instead of doing, you know, these like, you know, superficial activities, think about more productive activities, you know, um, learn a new skill, learn a new language, um, you know, develop some physical skills, maybe become more healthier um, and so on, which it, at the end of the day is what's going to give you a longer lasting feeling of happiness. Um, so another issue, I think it's also kind of related to psychology, which is um we're seeing now more and more younger people um, are developing what we call this internal locus of control. Um, and what I mean by that is that, um, you know, our our younger generations are starting to think more and more that the outcomes in their life um, are driven only by their own actions and not through any external factors or, um, or events. And this is in contrast to an external locus of control where people believe that no, not all of my actions are due to myself, but there's other factors which have been may have been responsible. 
Um, and so having a more external locus of control is actually more healthier, right? Because it gives us a bit of more um, uh, a feeling that, you know, not everything, and in, in fact, this is kind of going back to religion, that not everything we do is in our control. Um, there's some external factors which can um, play a role in our future. And um, in that way, you know, having spirituality, it's a huge, huge benefit that we have, especially when we think that, when we see in, in Quran, you know, especially that um, there's verses that say, you know, um, well, we know already that it's God is the best planner, right? Um, he, you know, nobody can kind of come up with a better plan than him. But it's also said, you know, that, um, and I don't have the verse, but to lose hope is also to lose um, faith in Allah. Right. So, yeah, I mean, um, I mean, Allah, know, Allah, says, Allah says the people who aren't hopeful are actually disbelievers. Exactly. So, like, they, they don't have true belief in God. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, having this hope is a very important thing. And I think it's also important going back to um, going back to patients with depression and anxiety. Um, you know, one of the things that we've seen is that, um, you know, there is this thing called the placebo effect in, in pharmacology, um, where people even, you know, you tell them or you give them a pill which has no active substance, like, you know, it has, you know, sugar or something. Um, they take that pill and they actually start to feel better. Um, and, you know, this is also true for neuromodulation studies. You know, we give them, instead of giving them electric stimulation, we give them fake sham stimulation. And about 20% of the patients come back and they feel like they feel better. They feel like there was an effect. And um, some research now shows that there are changes in the brain which might be driving this placebo effect. So our, our prefrontal cortex has these pathways, um, you know, what we call top-down control, um, which starts to cause changes more deeper in the brain, um, changes in neurotransmitters, um, and these end up having a therapeutic effect. So it all goes back again to to having hope. There was this there was this really um, interesting element which I learned from Dr. Andrew Huberman um, in in his podcast, um, where he he's talking about th the belief effect. So it's not necessarily um, placebo, but it's the belief effect that people who believe that stress, for example, he 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 did um, he was explaining a study on stress. And those people who believed that stress was bad for them, it was affecting their health um, compared to those people who thought that stress was actually a positive thing in life. And it was, um, you know, it would help them go through life. It wasn't so negative on their health. And actually, it, 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 it mattered because the people who did believe that stress was bad for their health, they their health did deteriorate compared to those people who didn't think that health was so um, stress was so bad on their health. So it's 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 super interesting um, and true what you're saying that the belief element is so important. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I would I would be interested in knowing more about that. I mean, it's um, you know, all of these things I I've just kind of been thinking about in passing. Um, but um, definitely, you know, the the concept of belief is very important, uh, especially when you think about psychiatry and contentment of life. Uh, yeah. Uh, let me let me just ask a quick question about sort of it's in relation to the research you're doing <clears throat> in terms of neuromodulation so from what i understand you're 
giving short amounts of electrical stimulation to stimulate certain pathways in the brain. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but is there also an element where by performing certain actions, you may also activate those pathways? Um, I'm thinking more along the lines of, for example, you know, there's a hadith a saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, who mentions that you should try to smile and there have been various studies that, you know, by performing a particular action of, of, of smiling, you know, it, it stimulates certain pathways in the brain. So I'm just trying to kind of link the two elements together, whether there's an actual link between your actions and by performing certain actions like praying five times a day, which is pre- prescribed in Islam, whether that can be a sort of a protective factor against these kind of uh, depression, anxiety, psychiatric illnesses. Yeah, I know for sure. Um, well, we know already, like the way our body um, performs actions are, you know, um, our external environment. Um, the body has a huge effect on the brain, you know, like it's not just a one way street, it's a kind of a two way street. Um, so, you know, you mentioned the study about smiling, um, or the, sorry, the Hadith about smiling. And I thought of this study, um, it was published some time ago, I forgot the name. Um, and they, they did the study where they took subjects, they took healthy people and they had them put a pen in their mouth, um, in order to kind of show this, like, you know, mimic, like the experience of smiling and, you know, they studied their mood for the next six or seven hours. And they found that, you know, like having this just facial expression, um, caused a lot of changes in the body, you know, and feeling happy and feeling already like, you know, positive, um, so definitely, you know, like our, the way we perform day to day actions, our daily activities have a huge effect on our, on our mindset and our brain state, brain state in general. Um, and, you know, if we, um, yeah, yeah. So if we, if we then think you, you mentioned in the beginning about stimulation, um, so, you know, we, for sure, you know, doing activities, you know, doing certain activities repeatedly over and over um, causes also changes in our brain state, um, which is kind of the reason also, we, you know, we are kind of instructed to do namaz or pray five times a day. Mm. Um, and if you kind of think back to uh, Islam, um, you know, we, and kind of link, you know, there's a lot of parallels, actually, you know, the way our neurons form memories and they form connections the same way um you know we are forming a connection with god through our praying um i think there is a, a hadith uh hadith it could see where it says that you know if you take one step to god you know god takes two steps towards you or 10 steps towards you and if you start walking towards god god starts rushing towards you right so in the same way you know when we are when our when our neurons are forming connections with each other um, you know, our first connection, you know, when we're much younger physically, um, you know, it's those connections are much more easier to form, right? Like our brain is more plastic. Um, but then as we start to get older and older, it becomes a little bit more difficult. Yeah. Nevertheless, you know, if we get older and we try to re- remember some of those memories, there is such an intense brain activation that the brain tries to really work hard to kind of reestablish that connection. Um, so in very similar ways, I think like the way we think about our connection to Allah, um, you know, it's saying Allah says that, you know, just take even one small step towards me and I'll, I'll do the rest, you know, um, 
very, you know, very kind of inspiring, um, you know, when you think about it that way as well. No, that's, that's really interesting. And all the different research, at least the Muslim researchers who we have um, on the podcast, a lot of them are saying that as they go about their studies, um, they've, they're just seeing so many different links as well. And I, I think a lot of um, Muslims and religious people in general are now beginning to see with advancements of science that what they're doing is actually protective or it's actually good for their health um, in terms of prayers or the different traditions that we have um, in religion um, especially. So it's really interesting. And I I guess the question which I want to ask is how in your research, in your studies, you know, um, you've done two PhDs, you're doing amazing work in Harvard. Um, What impact does the reading the holy quran have on your research or your your um line of thought if you like yeah um so you know quran has been you know like from a very early age i remember um you know anytime you read the quran you just get so much inspiration you just it just opens the possibility of the world around you um you just start to even look about creations that allah made in a very different way um, so one thing that kind of really stood out to me when I was, uh, you know, doing my studies early on, I was doing some research, um, during my bachelor, uh, bachelor years about insects and specifically about the hearing of, of, uh, the praying mantis, which is this, you know, this insect, which kind of looks like this, you know, really green and it has its hands like that. And we were studying, um, the ear of the praying mantis and we found that, you know, the ear is a very, very sophisticated ear. Um, you know, it's able to hear frequencies that are far above what our human ear can can pick up. But the ear of the praying mantis has been evolved, especially um, in order for it to detect um, the ultrasound of bats, right? So, which is its main predator. Um, and, you know, when I, when I started looking to it more, I found that, you know, the praying mantis isn't the only insect um, which has developed, you know, this very sophisticated organ. Um, it's actually shown up many times before in, in evolution. Um, and then that kind of, you know, I, 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 was, I remember reading this book, um, Revelation, Rationality, Knowledge and Truth by, by Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed. And in there, he kind of really goes into detail about, you know, what are the different um, creations that God has made and how is it possible that such, you know, very sophisticated um, organs have been developed, um, you know, multiple times throughout evolution, you know, and independently from one another? Um, so that kind of really inspired me that there definitely must be some some more something more to all of this, right? Um, and then more recently, you know, as I was doing my research, um, especially when it comes to um, psychiatry. Um, I know there is a hadith, um, and I, I don't know the exact wordage, but it says something along the lines that Allah has not made any disease uh, for which he has also made a cure, right? Um, Apart from so, death. Right, exactly. And, um, and then that kind of really inspired me to continue with my research about electric stimulation, right? Because electricity is kind of the very principle of the way neurons work. And by tapping into, you know, this very, 
natural thing that we already have in the world around us. Um, you know, perhaps that could be one way that we can think about how to try to, you know, uh, alleviate some of the pain in our brain. No, that's 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 really interesting. Um, I guess it's been a really interesting conversation. I'd love to have you back on the podcast as well um, and explore so many different elements. Yeah, no, and I, I guess the final question which I want to ask you, you, you spoke about um, religion, Islam, the Quran, your research. There's a huge element of um, atheism in the modern day society. And I guess because of a, a, a limited amount of scientists, at, at least getting a lot of the media attention, there's been this thought that, you know, all scientists are atheists. I want to ask you, has going into science you've done multiple phds you're doing lots of great work in research has that increased your belief in god absolutely it has um and you know it's it's kind of more not just belief but it's also like trust that i've had now um that you know any anything that you really put your mind to and you forget about you know you forget about like what's going to come later you just put your faith in god that what you're studying or the pursuit that you're trying to follow um ultimately there is a higher being which is going to control you or control your outcome um that's been really inspiring um but in general you know there you, you think about atheism the the kind of problem of atheism is not that you know they they actually believe that there is no God, right? They don't just believe that there might not be a possibility of God, but they they flat out reject God. And for me, that's just completely mind boggling, right? Like if, if you were to tell someone like all of this stuff around you just came like from nothing, right? That's scientifically even, that's just absurd, right? Um, so, you know, I've, I've never felt any kind of inclination to even going in that direction. It's just been kind of more the opposite way. Um, more that your, belief, yeah. your belief in Allah exactly. trust in has increased. Right. Um, Dr. Asif Jazakala, um, thank you very much for uh, joining us um, all the way from the USA, of course. And um, yeah, we, we really look forward to having you again, um, having you on the podcast again. Jazakala, and you know, thanks for, for having me and you guys are doing a great job. So keep up the good work. Thank you for listening to the Al-Hakam Inspire podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Visit our socials on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Al-Hakam Inspire. And of course, subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave your comments there. We would love to hear your feedback and thoughts. So send us an email to inspire at alhakam.org.